Chapter 12 of the Brighton Boys in the Radio Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Clifton. The Brighton Boys in the Radio Service by James R. Driscoll. Chapter 12 The SOS with Pistol Shots. To move from the position they were in was impossible. All they could do, imprisoned there as they were within a steel and leaden wall of rapidly falling machine-gun bullets, was to hope that the gunners would not change their aim, even by a fraction of a point, and that neither side would send up a torch-rocket to divulge their exact whereabouts and bring sudden death or mortal injury to them all. They knew now that they had been discovered by the enemy scouting party which they had observed a short time before, as they thought, without the others knowing their presence there in no man's land. They also realized now, when it was too late, that the Germans had returned to their own lines after that brief consultation in order to procure the machine-gun with which to wipe them out. And through it all they dared not return fire, could not even utter a word to each other without fear of giving the enemy a closer range upon them. It was a terrible three minutes for that isolated little group of Americans, for bullets were striking all around them, and the nearest not more than ten feet away, and there was every possibility that another detachment might be flanking them to cut them off later in their retreat in case the machine-gun did not effectively do its deadly work. There was but one desperate course open to them, and that Lieutenant Maxon ordered the instant the firing ceased. Run, he ordered in a shrill whisper, run straight towards their own lines for about a quarter of a mile, and then detour to the south. And off they started, each with all the speed he had in him. The renewal of the machine-gun fire compelled them to take a zigzag course, however, and in this way, for the first five minutes, they all kept together. Then Tom Rawl, who with the lieutenant had been a little in the lead, gradually dropped back until he was abreast of Joe and Jerry, who were running together, and then behind them, reaching Frank Hoskins and Slim, who were bringing up a loudly puffing rear. Finally, as they began to pass him too, his lagging pace became noticeable. He urged them ahead and told them not to mind him. I got one of those bullets in the hip, Rawl told them, to the surprise of all, for up to that moment he hadn't uttered a sound. Cuts down my speed, but it's nothing serious, I guess. You keep right on, and I'll follow as rapidly as I can. I'm almost winded myself, said Slim. I'll stick with Tom. You fellows keep right on. We'll join you in a few minutes after you stop, Joe. I'll give you the whippoorwill call if you can't locate you. At any rate, we know our way back to the American lines. Not so loud, warned Lieutenant Mackinson as he slowed down. I guess you're right, he continued. You stay along with Rawl, but the two of you are to try to follow as quickly as possible so that we can get Tom back to the lines for medical attention. It is necessary that I have the others with me, though, for we must not only accomplish our mission, but also give the commander the intercepted German message. And so the little group parted, there in the blackness of night, somewhere in France, the lieutenant, Hoskins, Joe, and Jerry to forge ahead as rapidly as they could in a detour that would again take them back into the enemy territory, but at another place, while Slim and the wounded Rawl came along at a slower pace. The latter had been wounded more seriously than he knew, though, for he had not gone more than three hundred yards further before the loss of blood had so weakened him that he had to stop running and hobble along in a painful, limping gait, leaning heavily upon Slim's shoulder guess i'll have to quit he said a little later on can't go much further and even as he spoke he sank to the ground while tom rawl assured him that it wasn't much of a wound slim who was doing the best he could to stop the flow of blood with his handkerchief knew that it was a bad injury indeed unless it was given early attention 
I'll try to get one of the others to return, he said, and then we can send to our lines for a stretcher to get you in. Nonsense, said Rawl. I can walk. I'll show you. But it was a pitiful effort and unsuccessful, and Tom himself had to admit that he guessed he was out of business for a little while. Thereupon Slim puckered his lips and imitated the low but far-carrying call of the whippoorwill, the call that he and Joe and Jerry had used so much to summon each other in Brighton. He remained silent for a moment listening, but there was no answer except the distant rumble of the heavy artillery fire. He repeated the call several times. Here and there to the north of them occasional rockets went up from either side, but their brief light divulged nothing in the way of encouragement. "'It's not going to do you any good to sit here without attention,' said Slim at last. "'Here is your revolver right beside you. I will be back in a half an hour. I'm going to scout around for help.' "'But don't take any chances for me,' Tom Rawl warned him. "'I guess I could crawl back to camp at that.' "'No, you couldn't,' Slim declared. "'And mind you, don't try it. I'll be back for you in a very short time.' He disappeared in the direction that the rest of the party had taken, leaving Rawl there to await his return. Half hour later he managed to find the spot again, but without the aid he had gone to get. Not a trace of the others had he been able to find. But that was not the worst of it. Tom Rawl, helpless for all his big body and physical strength, lay stretched out on the ground, unconscious, a pool of blood by his side. Slim put his water flask to the man's lips and tried to rouse him, but without avail. Whipper will whistled Sam. Whipper will But the sound was lost somewhere in the denseness of the night, and there was not even an echo for response. Slim was growing desperate. At any time they might be discovered by an enemy scouting party, and then they would either be bullets victims or prisoners of war. Yet he knew that he could not hope to carry Tom Rawl back to the American lines. Rawl's dead weight would have been a difficult burden for a man twice Slim's strength, and he knew it. What should he do? A necessary delay might cost the other man's life. Already his wound had caused him to lose consciousness. As he turned the thing over in his mind, there came faintly, ever so faintly to him from far, far to the south, as he thought of but a breath of wind, the familiar, Whippoorwill. Whippoorwill, shrilled back Slim. He waited, but there was no answer. It was though a poor Whippoorwill itself was mocking his plight. Whippoorwill! Slim whistled again, and thrice, but each time there was nothing but the grim silence for reply. Tom, he whispered in Rawl's ear, gently shaking the wounded man, Tom, can you get up? I'll help you back. We can make it somehow together. But here again only the weak breathing of his comrade testified to their plight. Better to take the one chance that's left us, muttered Slim to himself, as he pulled Rawl's revolver from under him to make sure that it was fully loaded. Yes, he continued. It is better to risk discovery than this fellow's life. He took his own automatic from his holster, and carefully examined it also. Then, with a revolver in either hand, pointing into the air, and with fourteen shots at his disposal, he began firing. Bang, bang, bang! Bang, bang, bang! Bang, bang, bang! The shots rang out on the night air like a series of interrupted explosions, but to the trained ears of other men of the party, Lieutenant Mackinson, Joe, Jerry and Frank Hoskins, two miles away, they carried their call for help. It was the SOS of the International Code, but in a new sort of wireless, by pistol shots. Trembling for results that his desperate action might bring upon them, Slim waited, bending now and then over the unconscious form of Tom Rawl. But in fifteen minutes his inventive genius was rewarded. 
from a considerable distance, but each time more distinctly now came the repeated call of Whip-poor-will, and in less time than it seemed possible that they could make it, the other group had returned. In low commands, the lieutenant directed affairs, and in exactly the way that he had been carried out in the hold of the Everett, on the verge of suffocation, so they carried poor Tom Rawl back to their own lines. And when he had been placed upon a cot in the first emergency hospital, Lieutenant Mackinson hurried off to make his report, in the honor of which they all shared. For not only had they found a location from which to wireless advance line communication to field headquarters, but they had also intercepted a message knowledge of which resulted in a quick change of plans by which the Americans were able to beat the enemy at his own game on the morrow. Rawl was suffering more from the loss of blood than any seriousness of the injury itself, the surgeon told them when they asked there of their friend's condition on their way back to their own quarters. He'll be around all right again in a week's time. And so much desperate work accomplished on the first night within the firing lines, the lads threw themselves upon their cots to dream of spies and captured Germans and injured soldiers and calls for help by new methods in wireless. End of chapter 12